True Sleepover Movie Believers. This is your trusty podcast co-host, Blake, with a very special Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers presentation. Today is Halloween, and though we have already covered the first three installments of the Halloween film series, Dion and Blake style on the show, today we are giving you something a little extra. Earlier this month, Scored to Death the Podcast featured a two-part interview I conducted with the great composer and former John Carpenter collaborator Alan Howarth, focusing on his work on the Halloween film series. I'm very proud of how the episodes turned out, and the feedback they've been receiving has been great. I even received a little praise, privately, from one of the producers of the latest Halloween film. So for a little festive holiday bonus, Dion and I are presenting you the Saturday Night Movie Sleepover listeners, with the Scored to Death Alan Howarth Halloween Special, the Uncut Sleepover Edition. Parts 1 and 2 have been combined into one episode. I think you will find it interesting, informative, and entertaining. And if you like what you hear, please check out my Scored to Death podcast and book for more conversations with some of horror's greatest composers. to them, children of the night, what music they make. Welcome back to Scored to Death, the podcast. The official companion podcast to the book, Scored to Death, Conversations with Some of Horror's Greatest Composers. My name is Jay Blake Fischera, and the book is available from Selman James Press. It features 14 in-depth interviews with renowned film music composers that have made significant contributions to horror and have worked with some of the genre's greatest filmmakers. It is available on Amazon and from other book retailers. The goal of both the book and this podcast is to explore the craft of film scoring and celebrate the amazing composers that do it. This week, we are celebrating Halloween with something a little bit different. So far, the show has consisted of career-spanning interviews with composers not featured in the Score to Death book. But today's episode is a deep dive into an iconic film series with someone I've gotten to know quite well since I first interviewed them for the book back in February of 2014. Alan Howarth is an accomplished film composer, special sound effects artist, and sound designer, whose work in film music began alongside the great John Carpenter on the film Escape from New York back in 1981. His interview in the Scored to Death book explores his life in music and film through almost three hours worth of detailed interviews, not only highlighting his film music career, but also his post-production sound work on such notable films as Poltergeist and Star Trek's 1 through 6. This week, however, Alan is joining me for an in-depth discussion focusing specifically on his extensive work on the Halloween film franchise. And we've got a lot to cover, so let's get started. So, you entered the Halloween series with Halloween 2. Correct.
I was just finishing, wrapping up the scoring, my first score, and it was with John on Escape from New York. So we were at the we were at the end doing a mix on whatever, and he sort of casually looks over to me and says, "Oh, by the way, Alan, you're going to do Halloween, like you know, there's, go do that." Uh, and basically, the, you know, the tagline was, "I'm going to be too busy filming the thing to deal with this right now." So you win the prize. So in in one comment, because he was too busy, I wound up being a Halloween person. You know what a, what a blessing. So he went out and got busy doing filming the thing. Rick Rosenthal went ahead and shot Halloween 2, and at some point I get the film, and in this case, obviously they still want to use the Halloween score, but with uh, you know some extra new improved with lemon stuff, and also shape to the new movie because obviously there's timing issues in these things and and whatever. But you know John John in Halloween one mapped out the Halloween theme, the Laurie theme, the you know the shape stalks. Uh, and some other things that wanted to be reused because it's a great score. Uh, you know, uh, in some ways, it's uh, the you know the, one of the greatest horror movie scores ever composed. So uh, I got my hands on the 16-track master of Halloween One that he recorded with Dan Wyman, transferred that to a 24-track, which gave me a minimum of eight new empty tracks to add to. And as it turned out, it wasn't really a full 16 tracks at any time. It was probably anywhere from nine to 12 tracks with a couple open tracks. And, and there was one track that was like the click track that kind of went, which wasn't a click, but it was like a little punch. And I actually used that when I made the, the, the soundtrack CD for Halloween and, and also the thing to put a pulse into the Halloween. Yeah. Um, and, and that actually, that was a ghost of having done the Halloween CD prior to that for John, uh, for release from Verez. And even though there was no pulse in the original score, I used that pulse to kind of put a beat behind it. So in some, for some people, I, I soiled that, that soundtrack album. Eventually, we went back and I did one without the pulse. But he said, just do whatever you want. You know, make it something people can listen to. So I thought the beat helped <laughs> at the time. Uh, now, if I recall correctly, when you were introduced to John, you weren't really familiar with his work up to that point. Correct. Yeah, no, I wasn't a fan of John Carpenter. I knew he was a cool guy. I mean, that that was that was known. I, I knew what Halloween was, but I wasn't somebody that could recite Halloween, you know, front to back, and was at the Church of Halloween. Sure. But had you seen it before you started working on the second one? Yeah, I certainly. I watched it to to refresh myself. You know, where where things go. Uh, you know, th- think of it this way: as as a musical score, there's a map, right? It goes from here to here to here to here to here. Here's the music you use when this happens, and here's the music you use when this happens. So I needed to understand that to now retrofit the original music to the new movie, and then also to add to it. So I think which the if you listen to Halloween one versus two, the first recordings were a little lighter, and and I don't know what the world would be, but it is what it is. So I, I overdubbed into John's tracks more synthesizer tracks and made it a bit more dark and gothic. That's where I was going with this, like Evo, you know? Yeah. So, so, so that was my, that was my contribution to it. And there was a couple times when the old score didn't fit, and I went ahead and made up a, a new cue of some music that was generic or, like I remember there was one, uh, one we called Flats in the Parking Lot, which was sort of a sound design cue.
uh, where it was just new material. It wasn't anything that was in Halloween one. Is the music that John recorded for the first one in the second one at all, or is it all kind of your redoing of the original score? No, no. Actually, I used the tracks yeah. from the 16 track, added my tracks, and then combined them all together. I see. Yeah. So it's a, it's a hybrid. Yeah, it's a hybrid. Since writing the book, I've become friends with a lot of people that are into horror movie scores, uh, more than I even knew existed in my real life. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they were very excited when I wrote the book. And I've also discovered that a lot of them, a handful of the guys I work with in, in TV post-production, are a bit of gearheads. And so they mm -hmm. are always asking me, like, what what were they using? What was Alan using on this? So what, what was your equipment rig back then when you were working on this film? All right, so this would be my rig a la 1982. At that time, indigenously, I had two ARP avatars, which are basically ARP odysseys, but then I was running them from sequencers. So I had an ARP 16-channel sequencer and then also a sequential circus model 700 programmer. So one of the, one of the things that, that was you know upgraded to those things is obviously the original synthesizers were something that you had to dial up a program, and when you change it, you moved you know, you move the knobs around and you had to write down where you were the last time or you couldn't get back there again. So one of the things that picked up from the 700 programmer was presets. You know, it remembered a, a series of settings that could then be played into the, to the ARP avatar, the two of them, uh, one, one being from the normal and the other one being programmable. So that made sort of this double ARP Odyssey thing being sequenced. Then the keyboard of the Prophet 5 uh, was the controller, so it had control voltage out on it. This was before MIDI, and that's how I, I you know, would change notes and stuff like that. I also had, at that time, I believe, still an ARP Quadra sitting there, which was uh, sort of the last of the ARP instruments, new generation uh, that was polyphonic and had several layers, and it was a pretty nice, pretty nice instrument. It had certainly the sound. So I was an ARP guy. And that, that actually is a subset of the fact that I, I worked for ARP. So when I was right after Weather Report 1979, 78, 79. You were touring with the, the band as kind of the synthesizer guy. Right, exactly. I was the, the, the keyboard tech, as, uh, as we would call it, or in the generic firm, uh, a roadie. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> set up the gear every day. But it was a high-tech roadie. I mean, there was, there was nine, well, whatever, two ARP 2600s. Two Profit Fives, a Rhodes piano, phasers, an Oprahim 8 voice, a Hope and Still piano pickup, uh, and an ARP axe, which were part of Joe's rig, that we toured all over the world with this thing. And golly, these were studio instruments. So you, it was like a race car. You needed somebody that knew how to take it apart and fix it in case uh, the journey from the last gig to the next would cause something to change. Sure. And then I know also because I was you know into it full time, uh, for a couple of years, I started to customize things and add switches. And, you know, I, I did things like pulled the power supplies out of the ARPs and the profits so that the transformers were nowhere near the interior of the the reverb or in case of the roads, the transformer was on top of the roads and that made a hum. So I, I de-hummed everything and made it nice and clean and wow. made, made a road rig. So anyway, we, we digress. <laughs> so anyway, I was an ARP guy. Uh, then sequential circus profit was what I had brought to Joe's Allen on the weather report back in 78 
And so I was a prophet guy already. I was a believer. It was one of the great innovations to synthesizers once you could save the settings and go to another setting and get back to the original one. As I complained before, if you didn't have that, you had to write all this stuff down and it weren't necessarily back to square one. Yeah. So that, that was the, the front rig. A tape recorder wise, there was a Tascam 80-8A track, and we also rented a Stevens 2-inch 24 track. The mixer was a Tapco, which later became Mackie, pair of, I had a 16-channel and a 24-channel mixers in there, of which the 16-channel was the input mixer, and the 24-channel mixer was the output mixer of the 24-track machine. So it looked pretty cool. Yeah. Reverb-wise and effects-wise, I had a uh, um, an MXR digital delay and sort of a, oh, I had a, other things. I had an, um, a Fender Princeton Reverb, I uh, had my Stratocaster, my jazz bass, and then also a Fender pedal steel guitar, which was great for doing effects on. I didn't really ever play it well, but I, it was it was neat to do what I wanted to do with it. Yeah. And then I had a cello uh, with a with a Barkus Berry pickup on it, which which was good for effects, and I used that. And uh, that's kind of it. That was it for the oh, and, and a Lind drum machine. Take that back. Yeah. So I had a Lind, Lind drum in there. So the Lind drum was the master clock for the rig. Drove the sequencers, and had its own synchronizer track laid off in analog to, you know, track twenty three of the tape recorder, so that you could go back. The drag was. If you wanted to use that that feature in the sequence, you had to go back to the beginning of the queue, turn everything off, push the button, and start the tape rolling, and it would pick up from the first edge of the signal. You couldn't do anything down in the middle. Wow. Because they didn't know where it was. Yeah. So, so there's a certain amount of fooling around. So that, that for the geeks, that's that's kind of where we're at. <laughs> now, when uh, John lays on you that you're going to be working on two, was it something you were interested in, or <laughs> was it did you just say yes out of the pressure of the uh, suggestion well no, I, I didn't feel any weight it was just like uh like in college you know uh, today we're going to study trigonometry and tomorrow we're going to do geometry you know it's just that it was another facet of the world of john carpenter i was great to just have work yeah i, I wasn't i wasn't all excited or not excited I, I went in neutral watched the movie looked at it as a job and then finally got serious about making the score for it in his absence. And, and so I had Deborah Hill and Rick Rosenthal as my sounding boards because John was in British Columbia doing things. You didn't feel pressure at the asking, but was there pressure that you were working with such what I would imagine even at that point was a pretty popular score. Like by that point, Halloween had become pretty big, obviously big enough to do, to do a sequel. Was there any pressure for this being your second outing in film scoring and this time without John, you know, by your side the whole time. So was there a little pressure to deliver? Be honest with you. No, I just took it as uh, you know, I'd already done star Trek. I already done escape New York. I was working on Poltergeist at the time, so I was in a an A-League mode where this was equally weighted to all the other stuff. The main thing was to do a good job and get it get it where it needed to go on time. Now, throughout the 80s when you were working with John, your credit on the cover of the albums mm-hmm. kind of changed. What did they all mean? As you were given more creative control, did, it, did you get a different credit? Yeah, I'd say there was a modulator. When we got to Halloween 3, it was an and... And uh, when we did uh, Prince of Darkness and 
big trouble. It was an and. That, that was a mini complaint on my part, I, I felt, you know. But in the beginning, I mean, here I am, just Alan Howarth in his dining room in Glendale. And here comes John Carpenter, who is John Carpenter, you know, whatever waiting there is. And so, you know, he did his own music. To, so to ask for how, how do you want your credit to be? I remember seeing a lot of movies where XYZ production is done by XYZ and then in association with Paramount Pictures or association with Technicolor or something. Sure. So that was my format. It's just a way to not take away from the, the strength and, and the, the who he is, but uh, a Me Too kind of thing, you know. Yeah, yeah. And so because John was away, basically you were working with Deborah and uh, Rick Rosenthal. Yeah. And – I don't know, were there a lot of sessions where they were in there with you, working with you, or was it basically just kind of the typical spotting session, and then you go off on your own and do it? Yeah, it was part B. I went for a spotting session. We identified the places where the Bible of Halloween says use this kind of music here and use this kind of music there. And then they sent, I, would, I worked pretty much by myself in, uh, in, in my home studio in, in the dining room in Glendale. It was very low-key, but it was the stuff you know, that same stuff John and I had used to score Escape from New York with. And uh, then I would turn in the music. And in this case, I didn't have true synchronization. It was a matter of watching the, the movie from a VHS tape and then kind of doing something that seemed correct or appropriate with it. And then I could go back and kind of push play on the videotape recorder and play on the tape recorder and have them kind of roll. Yeah. So those mixes were then turned into the film house because they were still mixing on mag. So there was a music editorial moment where the trans, the, the, the transferred music had to be cut in. And John actually did was the music editor. I think at the end, Yeah. he took what I had made and cut it in to, to synchronize it, how he wanted it to go. There are stories about John recutting the film and stuff. So in this particular case, did you ever have to come back and rescore anything after John had recut the film from Rosenthal? Or is it just that John laid it in the way he wanted it and that's kind of the way it worked? Yeah, yeah. So so any recuts, he'd still use the material that I, I had created for it. Yeah. He just he made adjustments, that's all. But there was no going back and do me something I, I need of this or that besides what you already gave me. Sure. Uh, oh, and the, and the also thing I turned into John besides the scores, I made a whole bunch, bunch of stingers. That was his request. So those what's what's for for the uninitiated, a stinger is a short sound, somewhat shocking to be used on the cut when you cut to something that wants you to have a response to, much like. So those those were separate on a separate track that could be slid around and resynchronized. So back back to if there was a, an adjustment in the cue or in the scene, those stingers were probably the thing that got moved the most. From talking to endless horror fans, being a horror fan myself, I, I know many people that prefer the score to two even more than the first film. So it was a successful venture for sure. Uh, no, I'm quite proud of it. It's very popular. Um, I, you know, it gets it get played during Halloween and the, the various places where music can be played and, and people download it. And uh, even there's ringtones of it. People can get put it on their on their phone and they, they think it's very seasonal and that's fun. <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, and when we did stuff, who even knew there was going to be a cell phone back then? We, we just <laughs> did our thing. Yeah. And then here, here we are, you know, 30, 30 plus years later, still talking about it. So there must have been something good to it. Yeah. And then the next Halloween film, Halloween 3.
is kind of a brand new score working side by side with John on something completely, di- you know, a completely different storyline in terms of the movie. And even though it didn't uh, fare so well at the time, Halloween 3 Season of the Witch is a film that has gained a lot of love since its release. Uh, it's one of those things when I'm on Twitter and stuff, people, I have a friend of mine that gets angry because he's like, it's not cool to say you love Halloween three anymore because everybody loves Halloween three now, (laughs) but uh, it's also a score that has become pretty loved too. I mean, it's a fantastic score and one of my favorites of the collaborations between the, the two of you guys. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about getting started on that and what went into it. You know, back, back to its popularity, there was an article last fall, not uh, fall, fall 2016, uh, in Rolling Stone about the 35 greatest horror scores of all time. So this was you know, wide open. Uh, the people who chose the music were from your group, not, not old guys like me, but you know, people that are somewhat new to it or, or do it from when they're kids. Number one was the original Halloween one score. Number two was the score to Halloween 2. So here we are with John and then Alan and John having people recognize those two scores as uh, some of the greatest horror movie scores of all time. And then uh, down number 14 was Christine. So, you know, when you're up against everybody who ever scored a, a, a horror movie, that's, that's, that's a pretty good, pretty good stats. Yeah, that's fantastic because I, I always feel that the Christine score – often gets overlooked because of all the rock and roll music and stuff in it. And it's not a whole, you know, because of the the rock and roll tracks and everything, you, you guys didn't even write as much music as you usually do for the films. Yeah. So I always kind of think of Christine as being something that gets overlooked because Christine might be that or Prince of Darkness. Mm-hmm. One or the other might be my favorite score from you guys. <laughs> I absolutely love the Christine score. Yeah. Yeah. Back to acknowledgement in the year 2000, there was an article about the 100 greatest film scores of all time. Halloween was like number 70, but Prince of Darkness made it to like 105. It got an honorable mention because it was <laughs> almost in there. So, it, 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 hey, we laid it out. You know, we, we, we did it from really from the heart and from the, you know, the, the tools available didn't hold back us creating a good product. Yeah. You know, you know, I mean, today something like it all, well, you know, got Cupid, no quantizing and no sequencing and no computers and all sorts. No, no, no. We still we made it out of what was in front of us, and and for me, we didn't think of it as a synthesizer score, although obviously it was synthesizers. But when I was dialing up a string-like patch, or a brass-like patch, or a percussion-like patch, the, the synthesizer made a sound that was similar to. So now here's here's this back to the word hybrid. It's not really of string, but it's a nice sound. Yeah, it's not really brass, but it's nice sounds. And those sounds have become iconic in the world of horror movie scores. Funny side note, and I'll jump into it. I just start, recently started on a movie called Hoax. Mm-hmm. It's a Bigfoot movie by uh, new director Matt Allen. And what he did is he said, Allen, can you just do all that analog stuff he used to do in the 80s? So, so in, in 2008, I'd actually sold my Prophet 5 and my Prophet 10 and my Oberheims and stuff like that. But I just went out and had to buy rebuy a, 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 a profit five which which I, I was thrilled to do and i it's like it's for me it's like Jimi hendrix not owner of the stratocaster i i should have one of those so yeah, yeah. i went i went ahead and got it and, and we're thrilled to do the original machine because you know there's software versions of this stuff sure and i actually sat there i wanted to do the test software version native instruments profit five software version 
Artura Profit 5, and Real Profit 5. Yeah. And there's just a warmth, a little fatter out of the original instrument. Yeah. Because think of it, that, that's the real thing. And then the software ones are like digital photographs of those things. And so, so they, they did their best. But anyhow, we, we digress. Back to Halloween 3. <laughs> that's okay. I'm, a, I'm, I'm interested in all of it. Yeah. So, so Halloween 3. So Halloween 2 is done. John's done with the thing. Tommy Lee Wallace is the film director. John's sort of in the background shepherding it, having a little bit of input. But it was really Tommy's baby. And so it comes time to score it. And John's actually looking forward to scoring it because he doesn't have to be the director. He's not responsible for the movie. There's other people doing that job. He comes over to be a composer. So we sit down, we play the latest Tangerine Dream LP, because this was before any of that stuff, for inspiration. And then, curiously, John looks at me and he says, Alan, this is going to be real easy. All we got to do is rip ourselves off, which is his way of saying, I loved what we did on Escape from New York. Let's just keep doing that. So the first thing we did was the cue called Cherries of Pumpkins. It was sort of my turn to do something to set the tone. So I dialed up on the on the ARP sequencer with the sequential thing and the avatars, a the the main sequence that is Cherry to Pumpkins. And very interesting tracking it uh, you know in several passes with different tonalities, even though it was the same synthesizer with little adjustments. And then also using a feature that's in synthesis called an LFO, uh, which is a you know an oscillator that slowly rises and falls, and uh, using that on the filters, so it wasn't always the same sound. It had a, a you know a slow meandering change on each of the takes. So there's a you know the up and downs of of the growth of the the intensity of the sequence back down, and then the the, the sort of the lead instrument that you hear ba da ya. So uh, that's me playing on the Prophet Five. So that was the beginning, and that one, and also that was that was joined with the opening title sequence. If you remember, there was all that graphics. Mm-hmm. So we we so we did the droney part, and then later on, I very precisely programmed the sequencer uh, at different tempos with different tones to synchronize with the the on and off pulses of the of the graphics. also made the musical and tempo and stuff like that so there was a little extra detail on that uh then we start off on, on the movie and you know there's i guess there's a certain little flavor from john of the stuff he did in the fog this you know da, 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 da. Which Halloweenish, fogish, but now a new one for Halloween three. Yeah, and and so he liked it because it wasn't Halloween, but it was Halloween-ish. 
it had its own unique rhythm and and a lot of lot of other younger musicians come back to me and that Halloween three opening Cherries of Pumpkins is just one of the iconic cues from that time in in movie music. It just, it just works. In fact, I really enjoy it. I start, when I do my live concerts, it's my my opening opening number it sets the mood for the whole rest of the the catalog being played. Yeah. Now, in the book, you kind of describe that your method at the beginning with working with John is John would kind of lay down what was basically the main mm-hmm. theme, and then uh, eventually you would come in and kind of orchestrate around it with some extra touches, layer it a little bit. Aside from the cues that you created for Halloween 2, but in terms of collaborating directly with John, was Halloween 3 the first time you really got to drive a little bit in terms of creation? Yeah, yeah, because it was... It wasn't, it wasn't as important a movie. You know, John was reluctant to even do the sequence in the first place. And when we did Halloween 3, it was John and Deborah's idea to depart from Michael Myers and start a Halloween anthology where every year they could do another story that took place on Halloween with some other flavor. Yeah. But when Halloween 3 went out there and everybody went, what happened to Michael Myers? Created a, a, a bit of a rift in the universe. And, and so John wanted to, if, if we... If, if he had to go back to Michael Myers, he wasn't interested. So they sort of agreed to agreed to disagree, and John and Deborah stepped out of it when we got to Halloween 4. But, you know, that's what it is. They still got their checks. They were happy. They didn't care. They already had this huge, successful thing. But where was I? Oh, so, so, yeah, I mean, think of it this way. We got By then, I think we actually had synchronization of sorts, where I could roll the picture and the tape recorder would roll with it. So John's uh, comment there was, he loved this method because he, he referred to it as the electronic coloring book. So he could watch the movie, perform the music while watching the movie, and that was much more inspirational for him for the arrangement. You know, this goes here and this goes there, and we put this here, and et cetera, et cetera, just by watching the movie and doing it. So nothing was ever written down. It was all improvised on the spot. Yeah. And, and so that's what went into that. And because John didn't want to know anything about the technology i mean there was times when i tried to explain it to him and he says alan i don't even want to know that's your job so so his interface was sitting in front of the black and white notes and pushing them up and down as as needed uh my job was to make sure all the studio went worked well and that was easy because it was my studio yeah i had all the gear he had the movie he came over we made his scores on my studio and so the managing of the sequencers and the presets and what sounds are up and you know, getting the tape recorder rolling and switching to the next track to record. I was, I was the recordist engineer guy and then, you know, sitting right next to him. And there would be times when I dial up, uh, something, you know, back then, skip New York, you know, something where it goes, bop, 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 just some, you know, little note pattern, but that stimulated the rhythm, which then went to how we do the layers and things would just grow by listening to one track and using that to, to, uh, dictate or inspire us to what, what, what was next. In the case of Halloween 3, because John was producing the film and doing the score, uh, you didn't really work much with Tom Lee Wallace other than the jingle. Is that correct? That's correct, yeah. yeah and, you know, Tommy was welcome to come over whenever he wanted, and he did stop by to see how it was going. So somewhere, I don't remember we were done or not. I'm not quite sure. But uh, Deborah Hill called up and said, oh, we were going to need some music for the jingle. For me, it was like, what jingle? You know, the one on the TV. Well, it wasn't on the TV yet. You know? <laughs> yeah. So 
So, but you know, it was, it was explained to me, and I think I did, I did send some sort of test version of it so I could kind of see what was going. So Tommy came over to the same studio. I worked in with John, with uh, John. This time it's me and Tommy. Uh, and Deborah's instructions are to create the jingle to the melody of London Bridges Falling Down. She wanted something that was what in the public domain. She wanted nobody to ever come back and sue that we took their something like whatever they had in the world of commercials. You can imagine how those people are. Yeah. So three more days to Halloween, 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 London bridges falling down, falling down, falling down. It's the same thing. So that was, that was the core of it. And then Tommy had, he actually played some, a lot of the keyboard on it because he had some, other musical kitty exercise that he knew that he inputted to the sequencers and then I recorded that and then began to manipulate the sequencing. On the instruments and actually by then the flotilla of synthesizers, the ARP quadra had gone away and we now had a profit 10, which was a double profit five. And there were internal sequencers to those machines over and above the ARP sequencer, which was the, the primary driver of sequencing at the time. So you could do more, more elaborate sequences. You weren't limited to 16 notes. You could do things that were, you know, several phrases long and play them, speed them up, slow them down, half time them and all that kind of stuff. So, and then the vocals on the, uh, on the thing are Tommy and I, uh, you know, the, the announcer is Tommy. And then the two more days to Halloween, Halloween. We did sort of the chipmunk style where I slowed the tape recorder down. We then recorded our normal voices, but slow. Three more days to Halloween. Halloween. That kind of thing. And then we sped the tape back up. To, Three more days to Halloween. <laughs> Halloween. So, so that was the, the craft there. Yeah. And it, it's the oddest thing, but it still works. It, 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 it fit the idea of the company making the mask was going to kill kids. Sure. You know, it was seditious and, you know, sucked the kids in and it was going to kill them. So, Oh, I mean, well, you can count on as Halloween's approaching, however many days to Halloween it is on social media. Somebody will oh, yeah. take from YouTube or something <laughs> that, that commercial or, you know, from the film and play it, you know, to kind of let everybody know there's eight more days or whatever. That's right. kids. today is the big show. <laughs> How much time, you know, when John did the thing, because uh, there's the story as to he needed some extra music in the cutting room and he decided not to go back to Morricone for more music. So he came over to mm. your place and you guys did a few cues for the thing. How far in between the sessions for those couple of thing cues between that and Halloween three? Like, what's the timeline? Mm. Now you're going to really test my brain. <laughs> Even though we see like, you know, the release dates of the film and stuff, I think it's kind of hard for fans to like myself to put into perspective that this was all happening in a very small amount of time, really. I mean, when you think of it, you guys were putting out some of the greatest scores of all time in only a, few, a couple of years. <laughs> yeah, no, I start. I started at the very end of 1979 on Escape from New York with him and then. 1988 was They Live, so that was that full full blast of, of material in eight years. Yeah. And so, yeah, so we aver average one a year, because I think there's seven plus some parts and stuff like that, directly working with John. 
but the, the answer is the timeline. I think thinking that we must have done those cues for the thing first, because John would, wouldn't have time to get involved in Halloween three until he was wrapped on the, on the thing. Yeah. And then, and those cues in, in the thing, if you really listen to them, they're very similar to what we actually really did on Christine. Yeah. It was, it was, it was from that same palette. Yeah. And I told John, you know, to me, you know, of course there's Marconi's like main theme. To me, like the sound of the thing is those is those cues, the ones that you know you guys did. Uh-huh. <laughs> like yeah. when, I, when I think of the thing, like that's what I hear in my head even more than the Marconi music. It was just so desolate and perfect for that movie. It made it a John Carpenter movie. Yes, absolutely. So, so to, for those that don't know the story, I'll summarize really quick. So, the original composer is Ennio Morricone. John hires him. There's a language barrier. Ennio only speaks Italian. John speaks English. There's an interpreter in between. John spots with him. Ennio goes away. He comes back with a bunch of music cues that are all very orchestral, uh, and we do hear them in the movie. They're not like they've been thrown out, but they're they're the stuff that's not part of the John Carpenter sound. And then John was like. How do I tell Enio that uh, this is not exactly what I had in mind? Well, he turned around and played uh, Enio some of the score from Escape from New York and said, can you give me something like this? So then Enio went back for a second pass, got a couple studio cats of synthesizers, stuff like that, and created that iconic opening theme. And and maybe some other stuff, too. I, I never tracked it totally. But then uh, the movie's cut. It's, 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 it's taken place. John's still in a mode where there's optical effects are kind of holding up ever ever being done done uh and you know that was a huge project and ambitious thing on rob oteen's part for all those visual effects yeah yeah so 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 he, he said hey listen you know i'm gonna come over this afternoon i'm gonna make make a couple other cues up you know very casually and we sat and did those things in oh a three-hour session or it wasn't a big long thing Now they never really, unfortunately, even though it was a waxwork, I think put out a thing album. I was really hoping if you were gonna, if they were gonna do it, it would have been great to be have to have been able to include those cues. But really, the only place we could hear those cues is the CD where you redid the score, right? That's correct. Yeah. So uh, BSX Records uh, contacted me and wanted me to make a new recording of the thing. And include those incidental cues that we did, which which I did. So there's a CD out there. I think it's for download too, possibly. But if you search the the thing, uh, it's not the official looking artwork because you know that cost. It was all done on a lower budget. Sure. But actually, uh, myself and Larry Hopkins, who helped me, 
we did a great job of re-recording the Morricone music. Yeah. In fact, in some ways, because it was done with modern instruments and, you know, samples and stuff like that, and Larry's an expert at just making the samples as living orchestra as possible, it's almost a better recording than the original. Yeah, yeah. I remember a friend of mine who, actually who I've told you about, he's the one that I describe at the beginning of your chapter in the book who wanted to move to Glendale and sleep in a cot <laughs> in your room, <laughs> in your studio. Yeah, yeah, I remember yeah. when that CD came out, you know, I remember him being so excited to hear that music from the thing, not just what was on the traditional soundtrack. Mm-hmm. So after Halloween 3, you know, you guys do Christine. Mm-hmm. Then Big Trouble. Big Trouble, yeah. Prince of Darkness and They Live. So right around the time of Prince of Darkness and and I guess They Live is when Halloween 4 comes your way. Is that that fair to say? Yeah, I kind of remember being on the end of Big Trouble. And and the interesting thing about Big Trouble is it is the greatest score that we ever did as far as the musicality and the production uh, and that – one, it was that movie dictated a lot of different kinds of music than a general horror show. Normally, we had somewhere between six and ten weeks to do it. In this case, because of some other delays in the schedule with optical effects, we had 14 weeks. So we had like a full month beyond our normal window to re-record or put into the earlier parts of the score stuff that we didn't know we were going to do until we got to the end of the score. And I could grab that and and recast it and re-record it and pepper it all back in. So that certainly is the most iconic score. And and interesting, when they did the double CD, it, it was like... 90 minutes of music that was a lot of music <laughs> yeah yeah well i don't think it ever really stops uh and and you know and that movie still holds up as well as the rest of them you know oh so, yeah i mean i think it's i mean it's his most fun movie for sure you know yeah yeah. I was sitting with somebody, a female who isn't as familiar with with his work and and mm-hmm. and that was on and we were watching it and I was just I was just telling her I was like you have no idea what it was like to be a little kid and see something this awesome. <laughs> yeah. You know, just like the flying little head thing floating around and the the guy blowing up. I was like it is it's uh, my my same friend Dave who I just mentioned before. He he's like it is maybe the coolest movie ever made. Yeah, and you know, both the thing and and Big Trouble were considered box office flops. Yeah, yeah, it's because, crazy. Because of, of of the business, the way the business was done upon the release one Universal didn't know what to do with it because they had a hit in E.T. at the same time the thing came out and the whole world was loving E.T., the the, the lovable monster. Uh, and so they just went with it. You know, they had a huge hit. So they just yeah. they, they laid it out there. The thing did what it was and they pulled it. And then same thing with Big Trouble. Turns out that the marketing group in, at Fox that was in charge of marketing Big Trouble got fired like two weeks before it came out. So we had this whole dropping of the ball and the new guys not knowing how to handle it, what to do with it, and or 
maybe even thinking, well, we can't have the guys before us have a hit on their hands. So there may have been a little bit of um, nefarious thought behind there too. Yeah. But yeah. either way, it was both of that was crushing for John. Oh, I'm sure. Because he, he, he knew he did it. And, you know, today we, we agree. It's great, 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 great movies. But at the time, it was uh, the, the Hollywood business. was. Oh, I mean, I always point out, I have another podcast that I do that's about movies with a friend of mine. And we've we've done a lot of Carpenter's films on it. And I always point out that, like, to be sitting in the cutting room making the thing mm-hmm. and seeing what you've done and then to see the reaction to it. I mean, it can be soul crushing. And there's there's some people that wouldn't be able to come back from that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah, I mean it's it and and then you know Big Trouble just kind of unfortunately it was just kind of too far ahead of its time I think I mean yeah Hollywood didn't really catch up with that until like Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon <laughs> like over like uh, ten years later or more even well you know it's interesting because I'm the, the writer is a W D Richter I think uh, and he was the same guy who wrote Buckaroo Banzai which yeah. is a movie I did just before that. And he was—he just commissioned these these fantasy films that uh, even Buck Rubanza has an, an after after fan group now that goes back to it and says, "Wow, that was a really cool movie. Why didn't everybody hear about this thing?" <laughs> exactly. I mean, since we're talking about this period of time before we get to Halloween Four, uh, I really because I mean, you and I have talked a little bit about it, you know, privately because I had you sign a Coupe de Ville's record uh, for mm-hmm. me, but the big track on the Big Trouble in Little China score that everybody kind of loves, especially because the video got, you know, got kind of re-released on the DVDs when it, when Big Trouble in Little China came out was the Big Trouble in mm-hmm. Little China theme song by the Coupe de Ville's. Yep. And right around that time, I'm not sure of the exact timeline, if it was before or after, but then there's Waiting Out the 80s, which you kind of produced, I guess. I'm waiting out the 80s. I'm waiting for you. I'm waiting out the 80s. I'm waiting The Coupe de Ville was... Uh, John Carpenter, Tommy Lee Wallace, and Nick Castle, who that was the name of their band at USC when John was still in dark star mode. Yeah. So, so the Coupe de Ville used to play parties and stuff like that. And so they had that affinity and they're, 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 they're still buddies. I mean, they're, yeah. they're and you can even see a, there's a book that came out uh, photographs from the set of John's early movies where you can see them playing acoustically at like the Halloween rap party. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so so Adrian Barbeau called me up and said, I want to give John a gift. I'm going to hire you to record their next record. That's really the the bottom line on that. So it was her gift to John because she knew how much he loved music and wanted to play and had all this stuff that he was working on with Nick and Tommy. So uh, in the background, when John wasn't busy, a lot of times it was around December, January, because you know there, there's no work in December, January usually. You know, the movies all come out for fall, and then you start up again in February. So there was a window there where we recorded uh, all the Coupe de Ville, pretty much doing the same thing we were always doing uh, with me and John. And then Tommy came by to play some guitar, 
Nick came by occasionally to do little keyboards, but the main thing was the vocals were the three of them. Yeah. And then, and then I, and I play a little bit of guitar on it too, you know, just as in the, in the doing of it. Sure. And then he pressed 100 LPs as a vanity publishing and each, each guy got 25 and I got 25 and that was it. Close the book. It was never to, intended to be released. It was just for, for jollies, et cetera, et cetera. But it's good stuff. It is good. She has friends who miss her. Say I'm not to blame. They turn their heads. They feel ashamed. I know she works at night. She doesn't drive. I know she'll see the light. And, and so at, at some point, uh, you know, it's, it's obviously Coupe de Ville property, whatever they want to do with it. Yeah. But, uh, but I'd, I had a couple of records and that I brought to a couple of conventions and people scarfed them up right away. Yeah. Because those are true. Those are true. Collect- that is a limited, limited edition. I started collecting vinyl again when I started the book. Mm-hmm. Because so many uh, of the, the great scores were coming out. And while I was doing the book, I think is when a lot of the Death Waltz re-releases of the stuff you would, had done with John started mm-hmm. coming out yeah. again. So I got a record player just to kind of stay current while I was in the middle of working on this book about horror film scores. And mm-hmm. that quickly became like my holy grail record. <laughs> because, I yeah. mean, you're the first person I've ever heard put a number on it. It's always like there was a limited number. But uh, when you and I talked privately about it, you, you were the one that revealed that it was there was really only 100 copies of it. That's it. And it, was ne- and it was never pressed on CD. Uh, it was only a vinyl. Yeah. But I assume that the Big Trouble in Little China track was a separate session. Was that during the same sessions? No, no. I think we were, we were pretty much wrapped up with Big Trouble. It was in kind of the void, the great void from Big Trouble to Prince of Darkness. Yeah. Because, again, it, it was very upsetting for John because he made a great movie and it wasn't successful, et cetera, et cetera. So he kind of went into a whole reflective mode and uh, as a release made the hot, the Coupe de Ville stuff. And then we, you know, at the, at near the end of Coupe de Ville, I'm trying to, I, I'm visioning the being in the studio and what equipment's there that tells me what's going This was still before Prince of Darkness. Yeah. But uh, moving forward to Halloween four. So how did you get introduced to that project? Yeah, and I got to look at my timeline here to get my ducks in order. It was near the end of maybe Prince of Darkness, maybe. And I had been approached by Trancus International Films because they were going to make Halloween 4. And they knew I worked right with John. John wasn't interested in working on it. Again, they had separated themselves from the Halloween franchise. So they asked me. So I turned around, and I remember John in the studio said, Hey, John, I got a call from Trancus. And they want to know if I'll do the music for Halloween 4. Because I didn't want to be sneaking around. He was my buddy. Yeah, sure. And he looked at me and says, hey, do whatever you want, man. You know, it's like, uh, knock yourself out. If, if you want to do it, go for it. So I proceeded on and to jump into Halloween 4. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to forget. Uh, Dwight Little was the director. Yeah. And, and he came by a couple of times. But because I was cranking out more Halloween, I was under the under the orders from Mustafa Akkad to make sure I got a lot of that Halloween theme in there. 
don't don't go yeah. too far away. Use use the the original John Carpenter Halloween themes as often as you can, because that was part of the glue that made the sequels part of the return of Michael Myers. Yeah. And it's also, it's coming out 10 years after the original one Mm -hmm. back then. I'm sure it felt like forever, but looking at it now, looking back, it's like now that I'm almost 40, 10 years seems like nothing. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But you know, kind of, you think of that, you kind of feel like they were much further apart than they were, but they, Mm -hmm. it was a 10, 10 year anniversary when the fourth one came out. Yeah. And for me as a composer now, you know, I know how to play the whole Halloween theme. I know how to play what we call Lori's theme. I know how to do the dun, dun, dun. You know, I knew all that stuff. So, again, it was just mapping the, the same kind of map that I, I created for Halloween 2, where, you know, when Michael does this, you do this, and when Michael does that, you do that, and when we're looking around the town and the empty streets in Haddonfield, you kind of put this. So those were the, the signposts along the way of the score. And then I also then really took off on putting, quote, my own sound on it. Sure. So I was very influenced by the, you know, the, the 70s, late 60s, early 70s music, Pink Floyd for sure, Genesis, Tangerine Dream still. So these influences of my the artists that I looked up to then came through into how I wanted to produce the Halloween four score. So uh, if you notice in the beginning, it's, it's the, you know, the, just the opening credits. I didn't play Halloween theme at all. I made this atmosphere slow building back to you're going to get to Halloween sooner or later, but I'm going to hold out for maybe five minutes before you, you hear dun, 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 dun. And even then I played only in fragments. And then only after we finally get to the action, do I kick in the Halloween theme. But I think it's a really nice build of anticipation i try this so i was trying to hold back like oh yeah i can't wait to get now you need okay okay oh, another note oh yeah but uh it, it, stand, it, it holds up well and then there was some additional themes because it was new characters so i create composed you know new music for that stuff yeah And then uh, in the end, uh, maybe overdid it a bit on dun 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 dun, but that's what I was asked to do. Sure. So you know, as a composer, you're providing, you're doing a service. It's like you know, it's like going in and painting somebody's house. They wanted blue. Do not put yellow up. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You're hired to provide what they want. I mean, I think that's. I work in post production, and when I meet younger 
editors. I work, I'm an editor. And when I meet younger editors, they get kind of frustrated sometimes about how they think it should be. And I, you know, having done this for a while now, I'm always like, they're not even asking for what's best. They're asking you to do what they want you to do. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I can imagine that that's exactly the way it is. If you're not John Carpenter, who's scoring your own films, when you're a composer that's asked to score a film, you have to give the director and the producer what what they're asking for. Yeah, yeah. And actually, a little follow-up on that, uh, what they're asking, working with John Carpenter. So here I am, I've scored one, two, three, four, this is my, John's not there, but my fifth Carpenter-esque movie. But remember, I sat in the room with the guy for five or six years watching him do his thing, I learned from the master. It was like I went to a school of one. Yeah. How to score a John Carpenter movie. Sit here, work with him, participate, learn the lesson. So, yes, uh, when I did the score without John there, it was still somewhat like what me and John did anyhow. Just, you know, going off in slightly different direction, different tonalities. But, again, just doing, doing what I learned from John, again, on my own. A couple things. I mean, when John says, yeah, go ahead and do it, do you, I see, I don't, you know, I, I've, I've met John and I interviewed him, but you know, do you think he really cared <laughs> or do you think he really was like, yeah, sure. I mean, did, you know, he knows that you have to make a buck and, uh, Oh no, he did care. We were buddies. Yeah. Um, I look forward to him coming over. Uh, the time I spent doing these, these scores with him was some of the best times of my life. So, yeah. There, there, there's, there's no negativity over it. Sure. Uh, he was, he was candid. Uh, you know, we, we talk about stuff as, as general people and he'd share some stuff with me and, or, you know, he'd be on the phone doing business and I'd hear business go down that probably had no business listening to, but he was in the room. I could, could get away from it. So, you know, I was, I was loaded with, uh, some of the, some of the inside track on some things and what was going down, yeah. but that was that. So back to, let's just, let's keep on the thread. So Halloween 4 goes down. I also I wanted to make the score a little more rock. Yeah, I know the sixth one ends up being very much a lot of guitar and stuff, but that kind of gets introduced with this one. Yeah, a little, little bit of using the guitar... Uh, with a phaser on it, not power guitar, but the, the moody guitar things. Mm-hmm. So it had that flavor. And also, at that time, I now had a, a new instrument in the, in the flotilla called an Emulator 2. So there was an Emulator 1 that was a primitive sampler, and we used it, we used it in big trouble for sure. But then Emulator 2 had like 17 seconds of audio sampling. It was like forever. <laughs> so... You know, I, I, I worked closely with Emulator, the EMU, the company that made it, and had a, a pretty extensive library of Emulator sounds. So adding samples to the score, uh, in addition to the synthesizers and the drum machines, was, was also part of the palette. Yeah. You know, looking, reading up on it, and reading past liner notes, you had an Armada C, the Soundcraft board with automation, is that? Yeah. And the Lexicon 224 reverb? And then I had an Ampex... Uh, MM1100, which was an original, originally a 24-track that had been built out to a 16-track that was built out to a 24-track with extra electronics, and I bought that from a recording studio. Actually, it was the MCA Records old machine that I bought. 
and, and rented it for a while and eventually paid for it. And that became part of the studio flotilla. So yeah, analog recording for sure. And, and you know, I by now had a, the, the videotape synchronized with a thing called uh, Q-Lock. So you literally could, you know, this was like big guy stuff they had at the TV studios. You could fast forward and rewind and have three or four tape recorders and a video recorder all chased to a spot and start to play. And then within a few seconds, all be synchronized and be exactly where you were every time in time code. Yeah. This was still before, I'm trying to think now, I think it's still before any computer sequencing. All the sequencing was still within the machines themselves being driven by the Lindrum flotilla. Uh, and then I think, you're going to get me now. Yeah, something tells me that all the way up through even Prince of Darkness, Prince of Darkness, I may have gotten like a Mac, a Mac with one meg of RAM in it. You know, it was like the, first, the very first one. And there was a, uh, a primitive sequencer at the time called Mark of the Unicorn, which is a big one now. But, uh, you know, I still use the older techniques. Though I think the one thing that I, I, I switched over for the Geekazoids, in big trouble because it was wanted to be a big score, I used a lot. We had MIDI in the studio by then. So I had a lot of MIDI stacks where there was five synthesizers playing in some blend. And, and as you played the keyboard, it was, you were firing all five at once. So that was, that was impossible to ever go back. So I, I started recording the, the stack in stereo. Obviously, tracks were very, very valuable. You didn't want to use any more tracks you want because you want to keep more tracks to dub. But I started making these big MIDI stacks and playing the five or six synthesizers with the lexicon reverb recorded on it. So if you were to go back to the master tape, the, the track that is this stack has everything all the juice on it, the reverb, whatever's happening, all just being captured. Yeah. And, and if you ever wanted to go back and do that again, good luck. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so, so I was now in that tech, I was using that technique on Halloween four. So I was recording MIDI stacks and, and you know, e even a recording engineer, uh, he used to work with Pink Floyd. I ran into him one time and he says, what he does is he puts the monitor section of the board all at zero and records at the level that's the right level for the mix. Because because what I started doing in the beginning, learning from, quote, engineers uh, in analog world, you wanted to record every every track as hot as you could because you would beat the noise of the track. Yeah. But then sorting through all that stuff after the fact to get the levels right and stuff like that was big pain. So I really got into what we called the pencil mix. You know, all the faders were set across. You did If you did that, the mix that you were listening to while you were tracking is still there. Yeah. And if you went back on another day, it was still there. In fact, if you open up those tapes now and do the same thing, it will be the same same deal. So we, we do Halloween 4. It goes out there. There's a certain amount of success enough that they go, okay, let's do Halloween 5. Yeah. But with Halloween 4 was, um, you know, you said you were given direction by Mustafa Cobb. Did Were you given any kind of direction from Dwight Little? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He came by to check on what was going on and gave approvals. Yeah, but 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 he didn't really start to try to steer the boat. He was just fine with what was going on. And uh, there's a track in the film on the soundtrack that's called "In the Shadows," and I find it interesting because uh, it takes on a little bit of a military feel to it with the percussion.
Yeah, I'm trying to think what scene that went through. It probably had something to do with cops and when the police were coming or doing whatever they're doing. So I, so I kind of gave them the, the authoritarian vibe for that part of the, part of the movie to, to make, you know, here, here comes authority, the cops, the military, whatever you want to think of. So, so, you know, it, the, the whole, the whole idea of scoring is you're doing musical storytelling so that from my viewpoint, if a person listens to the score all by itself and they've seen the movie, the movie will take them on the movie journey. So when I do my soundtrack albums, I don't go for the, the most popular track is track number one. I figure these are real, real film fans they're going to want to put on the score and experience it the way it was, you know, in a chronological way of the way it appeared in the movie. Yeah. So, so, so that's my, that's my philosophy. Somebody can disagree with this, but that that was the way I was doing things. And this is your first film as a solo composer. No, no, I had done uh, just prior to that another another cheesy movie called Lost Empire with Jim Lenorski. Oh yeah, yeah. But yeah, yeah. In the world of of, of the Carpenter motif, yeah, this was the first time I was I was left alone. John wasn't going to ever show up. He was done, and it was me servicing the franchise. Now, when you're working by yourself and you're creating new themes for the new character, you know, it's a new storyline, there's new characters, new relationships. You have Jamie, the little girl, and her foster sister and all that stuff. And, and you were talking about how you went to the school of Carpenter for composing. So was your process basically the same as that you would kind of watch it and improvise stuff? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It was the same. It was the exact same studio setup. John's not there. In this case, I'm make, put, making sure the red light's on and then playing. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and just keeping on it and, and re-recording my own performances uh, of whatever it is that goes, goes with that deal. Yeah. How often, I mean, obviously it changes per scene, not even per film. Uh, but if you, when you're improvising stuff, like how many times can you go through it till you find something that sticks and does it just feel does it just when it when it feels right yeah it's just it's just feel but there's a guideline already established for this movie so you know when you're going to jump into halloween theme or stalker theme or empty street theme sure uh and and so you start there you start to play one track that track stimulates the next track stimulates the next track and you just keep dubbing against yourself or you know recording more tracks of what you did or counter melodies or counterparts, you know, or bass lines or, you know, you, you produce it. How important can the sounds and the tone you're using, how important can that kind of shape even how you play it for the creative process? Yeah. Yeah. For me, for me, that's all important. That, that is, that is when I'm being the musician who's playing this particular sound, the sound drives me into what I'm going to play. So sometimes it's a matter of finding the right sound, not just finding the right melody or anything or something. Right, or exactly. Even today, when I'm going, to, I'm working on a new score. Immediately, I look for new sounds that I haven't used before. That for me, say, oh yeah, this this would be great in this in this movie. And I'm I'm so I feel for a long time reluctant to even go back and use that stuff. But in this case, because we're having sort of an '80s revival with Stranger Things and yeah, and and you know, reawakening of that 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 whole film scoring that we did in the '80s. Uh, I'm going back to that stuff, using those sounds, and the funny part is now I know exactly how to use that sound because they're asking me to do it again. <laughs> so, so, so yeah. this, there's the discovery is missing, but the the knowledge base of what you know use this sound for this and use this sound for that is 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 automatic. Well, I think that's a very important point to make, which is with all the 
the it follows and the stranger things this kind of this new synth wave of horror scoring everybody talks about carpenter-esque 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 but when Mm -hmm. we think of carpenter-esque scores especially from the time period that they're talking about we're talking about the sounds that came out of your studio that's true that's true um I was, you know, I didn't push the black and white white notes. Uh, John always took the first pass. I actually did later, but you know, usually following him. But yes, the 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 sounds I put up that stimulated his performances was definitely me. So I was mixing all the paint, and he was painting. Yeah. And even eventually, I used the same paint set and started painting on my own. And so shortly after, because of the success of four, they kind of roll right into Halloween five, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It was it was produced the next year, right? Wasn't it? Yeah, I think they're pretty much back to back. Yeah, and so different director, uh, same producer, fellow named Paul Freeman. So you know, it's just like we're going to do it again. Paul calls up, same as last time. This and that, and this and that, and this and that. Here's our deal, short deal memo, and uh, then I have Dominique Orthon Gerard come in. He's the director. Who's director? And he, his take on what he wants for the score is he wants me to go back to the piano score of Halloween 1. He wants to do a retro thing. Yeah. And so I did that. I, I really put a lot of piano out front moments, which was very, which he was very pleased with. That, that was the mood he wanted. And then I decorated around the piano. So it, it's really the piano is out front more than ever before. That was never recut. So, so whatever movie he gave me, I then scored to that movie and had new characters. So I tried to do some new stuff. I even remember doing uh, something that was supposed to be a little bit funny. And then we also had, I'm trying to think of this now. Yeah, we also had the whole, um, right here in Halloween 5, we had young Jamie, who now has a couple girlfriends, and they go out to the, the Halloween party out somebody's house and the girl gets killed in the barn and yeah yeah and, and and all that kind of stuff going on so so that that asked for new music that asked for new music and and the relationships of those friends so that's when it said all right different pattern of notes still in the flavor you couldn't go too far away because it's still being called halloween and michael myers michael myers is going to show up and he's going to get the same dun 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 no matter what you do yeah so those those, you know it it was like making a new suit but using the same same cloth (laughs) as last time yeah yeah and and it was good and and dominique was was happy and he was he was had had his input and came by and coached me on a couple things i remember the one scene that even creeping me out was when the girl gets caught in the, the the air shaft. Oh, yeah, yeah, at the house, yeah. Yeah, at the house, and she's in there, and he's stabbing through the metal, and she's just trying to avoid getting stabbed. Oh, man, that was, that was freaky. Yeah, I like Five a lot because of it has a lot of really great set pieces and a lot of really great potential. That scene always comes to mind for me when 
you know, some people are like, oh, five. I was like, yeah, but five has like that. Has, mm-hmm. <laughs> has the little girl stuck in the laundry chute or something. And yeah, right, exactly. It's, it's yeah, horrifying. Yeah. And the opening title sequence is, is awesome, too, from like. Oh, the- yeah, yeah. We should talk about that. So, so in the opening of five, remember I had this emulator and I finally had 17 seconds I could put in there. So the opening sequence, I actually took a recording of the Halloween theme from Halloween 4, loaded the whole piece of music in, right? So I had on one key, if you just held the key, it, the, the theme would play. Yeah. But now when, when we're chopping that pumpkin and, and, and the axe sounds, I would then kind of like could play the theme multiple times at different pitches on top of itself polyphonically. It was really a breakthrough moment for me of, of how powerful sampling is. Normally, the samples were single notes to emu- emulate an, an instrument. So you'd push the, the, the key down and you'd get the sound of a piano, or you'd get the sound of a, a drummer, you'd get the sound of a trumpet or something like that. And it'd just be bop, and you'd play that, and the next one you'd go bop, bop, bop. But now it was a whole piece of music in the sampler, and that was a breakthrough for me. That, that really opened up, oh, I hadn't even thought about that yet. You could do this now. Yeah. So, um, so the opening seat was very cutting edge for me to, to experiment within my own world and come something that I thought was just really freaky. And what was the sampler? It was this emulator two. It might, it might've been emulator three by then. I'm, I'm thinking of my timeline. I only got, to, I only got to emulator three and I was done. Yeah. I have a note that says Kurzweil 250. Yeah. The Kurzweil 250, but that wasn't as easy to get sounds in and out of. I see. The loading on that was a little more complicated. The emulator was very simple. You could literally just play it, put it in record, play anything into the audio input. It would capture it and push stop, and it would save that piece. And you could kind of, kind of trim it up. And for the for that opening title, pumpkin carving sequence, I also heard that you also recorded yourself with a, a like swashing a oh the ruler yeah. across the microphone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had from working. You know, my other hobby besides being a composer was was fixing up houses. So I I knew it had all that stuff, and I had a a big drywall metal ruler about a four footer. So I brought that into the studio, and I was I just recorded the sort of the the sound of swords, I'll call it. And loaded that into the emulator again because now you could do sound effects. It didn't have to be music anymore. It could be anything you want. And so use the emulator and perform the the sword swipes uh, or the cutting of the, of the of the pumpkins with these shing sounds from the from the metal ruler. An aspect of the score that I like a lot for Halloween Five, and it seems to be a recurring thing with like the foot chases, which is you take the familiar Halloween themes, but they become very disjointed and you kind of play them in little, little pieces and kind of play with the timing of them. Yeah. Yeah. That well, that became the, you know, how do you, how do you use the same thing over and over again and make it different? So, 
with like I said, with the sampler, you could go dun 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 on one note without having to play the whole thing anymore. And you could vary the if you vary the tempo by playing it a half note up, it would go a little faster. If you played a half note down, it would go a little slower. Play an octave lower, it would go from dun 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 dun. So that 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 whole exploration with sampling shows in that one because I was all I was all turned on about it. It was like really cool. I liked it. Just playing like a kid, kid with a new toy, kind of. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and 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 as a composer, you know, and I said this already, the sound that's happening out of the instrument dictates for me or stimulates what I play. Yeah. So when I want to make a new score, I look for a couple of new sounds or or even a whole new instrument. Maybe they let me do whatever I wanted. Okay. And and so that's that's what the score is. I think it still holds up on its own as a good score. If I if I have to pick my favorites, Halloween Four is my favorite because that was like my baby. Yeah, right? that was the first time I went out, and now I'm going to just do more of what I did in Halloween Five with a with an extra little lemon juice and and uh, uh, sugar on it. You know, where did the idea for the the cartoon sounds come from <laughs> for like the sheriff deputies? That was my that was my in, injection. Yeah, of trying to be trying trying to take a little bit more. So I guess what I call more standard, making them uh, Keystone copish. Yeah, yeah, dumb dumb cops. And they kept it. I mean, it's not like anybody said, well, that doesn't work for me. It's in there. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, you know, obviously that's got to be part of the process is you have to throw stuff up at the wall and Mm -hmm. see what sticks with the people that you're working for. And even when a lot of, especially when I'm by myself, separate from somebody else, I'll tend to overplay or play too much. So editing it after the the first tracking of it is a, a very important part of the process. To, to pull it back to the what is the essence of what was working for you and get rid of the extra junk and then rebuild one more pass on top of the, that essence track that you've created. I have a note. It says, never scored Loomis with a theme. Yeah, yeah. That was one of John's techniques was Loomis would always just be... Here, here was the, He was such a good actor that he didn't need score to communicate what was going on. So, you know, one of the one of the rules from John is let the actors act. We only need music when we need to propel the story from point A to point B, or particularly if it's not acted that well, needs a little, little reinforcement or wasn't shot that well or is a little disjointed. Music would then be the glue or, or the strokes that would go across all those cuts and, and kind of unify that scene into what it was supposed to be. Halloween's four and five were kind of back to back, but then we have a little bit of a, a couple year break before the sixth one comes up. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, I think that had all to do with business relationships, nothing to do with the fan base or the art at that point. I think they're approached by, Oh no, Dimen- dimension films is formed. That's what it is. Yeah. So there's, so that the Weinsteins had this, this, uh, let's make some low-budget horror films that was distributed by Disney. So it's like Disney's way to do horror films without having to put Disney's name on it and, and say that they're doing horror films. Sure. So, so yeah, so we, we get to Halloween 6, and um, the director shoots it. He does what he wants to do. I score Halloween 6 like it's finished. goes back to the dimension films 
and the Weinstein's have a whole lot of input. They they don't think it's going to be as good. They don't think it's as good as it's supposed to be. They want this and that and this and that. So they made they went back for reshoots and sort of pumped up the ending with whatever they wanted to do. So I did a second pass on Halloween six, rescoring the stuff had, that had changed and also kind of pumping up the drums and the guitars and making it more of a rock score. And then also in Halloween 6, I think there was a whole thing where there was a DJ. So, so the DJ had a bunch of songs. So I actually had a couple couple songs that I, I contracted from outside artists that were rock bands and artists from the my, my small contacts that and dropped in those 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 songs on the on the radio in the background and i think i did one even my, on my own uh rock song that i that i did da -da 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 -da. that in several times you know when the new there's a big massive box that came out a couple years ago they include the quote-unquote producers cut mm -hmm. and the score overall on that cut of the film is very different than what ends up being on the film so did you i mean you just i know you just talked about you know redoing things but did you end up having to redo like a lot of the of the score or were they just recycling stuff for that cut no i redid it so i, I it was a do-over yeah. Whatever was there for that area of the movie, or if it was new stuff that never was there, it re required the uh, new music. And like I say, the 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 pump it up was also talked. You know, and I was advised to like let's let's give it a little more balls, man. Let's take it up another notch. You know. Yeah. Where did that edict come down from? Um, that came from Joe, the director. Because I actually really, you know, I don't know how you feel about it in comparison to the other ones, but I kind of like that it's it's got a lot more like kind of rock guitar behind it and mm -hmm. big, like a bigger drum sound. I mean, it, in terms of a, as a listening experience, when you're listening to them as as CDs or whatever, it's kind of cool to hear it in that different style. Yeah, yeah, the Halloween theme with the with with rock guitars and pumping drums and bass. For a rock version of Halloween, I think that's the best one. Because other other bands have done it, and, and everybody's done their own take on it. But for where I was at, and this would have been like 1991, maybe. It ends up, I mean, because it went through so many things, I don't think it comes out till 95. Oh, no, that wasn't that long. All right, so let's say, yeah, it must have been, must have been 94 when I started on that thing, yeah. So, so we did it once, went back to recuts, got shots, came back again, and then even Joe had another guy jump in as sound designer to try to give him more sound effecty things to pump it up too. So, you know, more production than the original. So back to the producer's cut. The producer's cut was done in sort of a retro idea going back to you know always going back to what was the good stuff which was the first halloween trying to look at that one more time and say why did that work what what was that in its most simplest form and then injecting that into the new score for that particular sequel that was that was my drill 
No, I, you know, I'm sure the, likely there wasn't much thought put into it, but I, I find it interesting, and and it's a kind of because it's coming from you is that there are tracks like uh, I think on the soundtrack they're called Thorn, mm-hmm. and uh, it's his game that have a very Prince of Darkness or even the Thing <laughs> type feels to them. Yeah, no, uh, yeah, the, the thorn, uh, very much a ghost of Prince of Darkness there, for sure. Yeah. And it was a good cue. I liked it. it had, you know, we, we played with the bass guitar as, as the main thing with the bass guitar with an echo and go, and then built on, on, on top of that. And again, this, here was a theme that wasn't part of it. And we also had in Halloween 6, the guy with the little tattoo on his arm that helps Michael Myers. Yeah. Like like he befriends him because of the of the the, the cult and the, the ruins that are, that are predicting things and the ruins have power magic power in them all devices devices that needed new new music all new music or certainly a, a, a really different take on the thing the other thing I remember in the redoing it in the redo is they wanted more piano they said it again at that time I had graduated to having a synclavier system which was sort of like the emulator on super steroids yeah. And so on that instrument, because it was multi-voice, multi-timbral, I would put up like four pianos at the same time. So, so when I would play the piano part on the stacked pianos, it was like the biggest piano ever. And then I could do another track of more pianos. So certainly 10 fingers wouldn't have covered what was going on. <laughs> yeah, We were down to 20 and 30 fingers worth of piano being played. you also do that on five as well yeah five five is where i started with that yeah that stacking of of the, the piano that was that was uh was a technique and it worked well just uh as someone that has lived with the halloween franchise probably at this point more than anybody except for i guess the late mustafa akkad like what do you think it is about that original music even though you didn't compose it yourself that really works and has ha- has had longevity well you know it, it has some musical properties that john selected like the halloween theme is in five four time it's not a four four thing so it's it's a little irregular, a little unsettling to be that way. But you, know, you listen to it, you don't think five, but that's what's happening. I remember I did another movie with Tommy later. He wanted to do stuff in seven four. That was a little Coupe de Ville way of making things a little strange. Sure. And the fact that it's so simple, like a, a, a trained musician would look at that and go, that's, that's junk, man. There's nothing to that. But the audience and the listeners go, yeah, it's simple. I can remember it. 
and it's burned in. It just burns in. And then you know, a lot of times I meet somebody, and especially their, their younger younger members of their family, the, the younger ones, want to show me how they learned how to play the Halloween <laughs> theme. Yeah. Kind of, kind of like instead of chopsticks, they play Halloween now because it's, it's very doable. And that, that is that look, that's Carpenter's skill of the minimalist, just the lead, no more than exactly what you need and not more than that. And keeping out of the way. I mean, when he says he refers to his music as carpeting or wallpaper, it's not supposed to draw attention to the music. It's only there to support the scene, which, you know, as a director, he understands this direct the, the, the dialogue, the story and all this other stuff is happening. And he's in there to just fluff it up a little bit. But I know that I know that when they sc- they screened Halloween without the music, the particular distributor came in and said, ah, so what? Same person comes back with the score and he goes, wow, what you guys do to this movie? This is amazing. So he, he nailed it. There's no question about it. He nailed it. Yeah. As someone that has now scored a ton of films throughout your career, how important do you think repetition is to especially horror films, but just film scoring in general? Uh, it's very important. You, you cannot, you know, when you're an artist and you're making an album, you know, you usually tend to do song A, song B, song C, and they're all different. Not so in film scoring. You want to take a theme that, that works for you and then uh, develop it. So you may hear it in the beginning of the movie in a simple piano form, but that, that little three-note, six-note, eight-note thing that you're doing, you keep playing it over and over with different instruments in different ways, longer and shorter. So that when you get to the end of the movie, you're going to get the big produced version of a very simple piano thing that you heard in the beginning. That's a, that's a normal technique. Horror movies, any movies, movies in general, that's what you do. Yeah. That's how you make it work. And so now, so now the, learn, the audience has learned that piece of music after an hour and a half. They know it, and when they hear it, it's familiar now. In the beginning, it wasn't familiar. They were just in you know, first class. But now they've graduated for the, from the composer's biggest baddest most sentimental most action most crying whatever you're going to do with the theme at the end yeah and so, and so you you run that through and usually there's like three kind of the main theme and two sub themes that go with other characters or other other aspects of the movie or other locations of the movie uh, but that's 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 it you know uh, that's that's how you do it you know if you were to continue to keep to making different music through the whole movie i think it would be very disjointed yeah, the, the 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 ride or the experience of the movie is from beginning to end. It's already been well architected in the script and the story and where the movie needs to go. Then that gets shot. Same thing, the the flow of the movie. But you know, as we know, a lot of times there's differences between the script and the and what you really got. And then you got to adjust in editing to maximize what you do have. And uh, when it's a well edited movie, scoring it is also very easy. Yeah. Looking back at all the Halloween scores that you worked on, how do you think they hold up and fit in your catalog of now scoring experience? Well, it's it's a uh, you know if it's if there's a category, the Halloween scores are their own category. The ones that are with the Carpenter themes for sure are a, a book set of two, four, five, six. Halloween three is its own thing, but ish. And then uh, Escape from New York is all by itself. There's nothing else that we did that's like that. Christine is its own thing with a, with with a little bit of reference back to the thing. Big Trouble's a whole new beast with a rock song and lots of Asian influence and lots of new percussion. 
Prince of Darkness takes its own journey that doesn't reflect a Halloween, and they live as a blues score. Yeah. So there's there's a lot of variety. And since then, I've done horror movies. I get asked to do horror movies. I wonder why. Uh, <laughs> but I enjoy that, and I, I you know I, I'm very much a collaborator. Uh, one of my directors uh, that I supported for years was Anthony C. Ferranti. Eventually, he found his his success in Sharknado. Yeah. Which I actually turned down. I can't believe I did this. <laughs> but, uh, I saw I saw the movie with no effects in it, and he was telling me, "Well, this is going to happen, this is coming." And I looked at it, and I just didn't have the energy. Yeah. And so I passed. Got a different composer. It turned out to be a nightmare, anyhow. But yeah, golly, that would have, you know would have been now the Sharknado guy, yeah. more famous than Halloween. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. It might have more sequels by the time it's done, though. Yeah, no, I think yeah, I, I think they yeah they even and he told me that one of them they ended it. And then in order to fix that, they had a time warp, so they had to come back and fix the time warp so it didn't end, and they could keep going in the storyline. It's, it's, it's all over the place. It's as wild as you can imagine. Yeah. And, and, and it's a combination of Anthony's filmmaking and, and his sort of wacky personality. Sure. He's a good guy. Well, uh, is there anything about Halloween that you want to talk about before we wrap this up? Well, you know, we've got a, a new Halloween coming out this year. So this is the year of Halloween. And I understand that the new one goes back to the last scene in the old one and literally ignores all sequels and goes in a new direction completely, which was enough to get Carpenter excited to want to be the executive producer. And I'm sure him and Cody and, and Daniel will score it. I'm, I'm sure of it. There's no, no doubt in my mind. Yeah. Uh, I would say for people that uh, are horror movie fans, and I would imagine that if they're listening to this podcast, they probably are, keep an eye out for when Alan plays, because it's it's awesome. <laughs> I have, I finally got to, got to see it myself. Uh, you do an amazing, a very cool live show, which is like a big, long medley of all the stuff you've worked on over the years, especially with a huge emphasis on the Carpenter stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's really cool to watch you work in that way because it's a completely solo performance and it's really neat with the video projection and all that stuff. Yeah, I'll definitely do uh, a lot of performances this year. I'm sure I'll get asked. Most of the time I do the horror movie conventions like Horror Hound or Thriller or you know, the various places where there's a whole lot of other horror movie stuff. Uh, but I'm also working on my own music for this year. I want to put my, my Alan Howard's 2018 stamp down and put a new album up and Maybe build on that too, so people think that you know I'm done. But they know I'm not done. They're, oh, look, man, listen, that's shit. So I got some stuff cooking in the percolator. Oh, okay, awesome. So I, yeah, I, I enjoy. Playing. I'm still a musician, an old rocker, and I enjoy getting up and playing. I, you know, it's it's not not only a studio experience, but the most of everything is in the studio in a in a, a darkened room with a video running and playing keyboards. I mean, that's the main how it works. And uh, for for our geeks, I use Logic as my sequencer. And then Pro Tools as my final palette of mixes for deliverables to whatever movie it is. Yeah, it's totally worth seeing. I mean, it's a for the people that did go out to see John live. I mean, it's a very different experience, and that, and, and I appreciate that about what you're doing. Oh yeah, yeah. No, John John does a nice thing. Uh, he's got his son Cody and his godson Daniel and three other musicians. So there's a six piece band up there playing a rock show. Yeah, let's face it, it's a rock show. Uh, mine is more oriented towards the film. Most of the time, it's just me. Uh, occasionally, with a bigger budget, I add a band called Zombie Zombie from Paris. Uh, so I get a, a real drummer and another another synth player. Yeah. And then in my biggest version, I actually have the video 
being done live by an artist named uh, Jade Boyd from Australia. Because, you know, like anything, and anybody who plays in a band, playing by yourself is one thing. Playing with other people is, you know, there's an exchange. Yeah. It's very dynamic. It makes you, it makes you do different stuff. And I've told you, if you ever come and do it again in New York City, that I will, I will, my band will back you. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, and, and just as far as tracking and stuff, I have alanhoworth.com, my website. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, whatever's happening, I'll, I'll put up there. And then also, you know, CDs and LPs and stuff like that are available in the store. And I, I personally sign all of them. I take this very serious. I sit down. I, I try to do good penmanship, not scribble. And, uh, you know, if they want custom messages like, uh, you know, happy birthday, Nancy or stuff like that, I'll put that all in there. That's fine. Yeah. And you also have, which I think is really interesting and cool is you have for some of those earlier scores, you have like the sheet music spiral bound and stuff that you, that you sell. Yeah. 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 Th those are totally unique and only available on my website. I, I'm not gone into any sort of Amazon publishing, but yeah, it turned out that the scores for Halloween, Two and three, and the score from Escape from New York had to be transcribed because contractually, uh, the deal that the movie company signed, whatever production it was, that was a, that was how it turned in. Normally, that would be no big deal because the composer wrote it all down and he had a band play it. But in this case, we improvise all the time, so I had to go back and really figure out what we did, write it out and, and as music uh, for a deliverable. And I found these scores in my storage and went. These are great books. So I, I went and did nice copies of them and put them all in sequence. And there's a music cue sheet in there. So that's really the, a great little treat. And, and, and collectors, I, and there's, you know, there's not a hundred more, more than a hundred of any of these out there uh, until it's only so enough to want to make some more. So yeah, at the website, check out the, the score books. Uh, they're great collector's items too. Well, thanks a lot, Alan. I'm thrilled to get to talk to you again. Your interview in the book is one of the longest because it's a culmination of three really great conversations that we had that spanned your music career, but also a lot of your sound work and special sound effects and sound design and stuff. So it's always fascinating to talk to you. You're a wealth of information. And I always, uh, I'm very grateful that you're always willing to be generous with your time. Yeah, no, you did, you did a great job. I was very pleased. You gave me a chance to edit and update and correct so it's very accurate anthology of sort of my musical career time timeline from the very beginnings of being a kid in a rock band through to as current as we were up until the last time we talked i need to thank alan for lending his time and knowledge to the show between my book this podcast and the time we've spent just hanging out i've had the privilege of being able to converse with him for many hours on several occasions and it is always fascinating he is a wealth of knowledge on many topics, and I am honored to have him continue to show support for both me and my work. If you've been enjoying the podcast, the book, Scored to Death, Conversations with Some of Horror's Greatest Composers, is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and many other places you buy books. Or you can order a signed copy from me directly. Just contact me through scoredtodeath.com. You can also find and follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at scoredtodeath. Scored to Death, the podcast, is now available on most podcast apps and distribution sites. Please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing the show on iTunes or on whichever provider you use to listen to podcasts. Ratings and reviews will help the podcast get recommended to potential listeners and raise awareness for the show. My other podcast, Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers, can also be found on iTunes, Google Play, and most places you find podcasts and on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Sat Sleepovers. You can find Alan and shop for Alan Howarth signed soundtracks at alanhoworth.com. 
And I should note that the short clips of music used in this episode were used strictly to put aspects of the interview into context, to audibly illustrate specific things discussed, and for educational purposes. The soundtracks discussed on this episode were Halloween 2, which is available on CD from Verez Sarah Band, and in a limited edition expanded CD from Alan Howarth Incorporated, as well as on vinyl LP from Death Waltz Records and Mondo. Halloween 3, which is also available on CD from Verez Sarah Band, and in a limited edition expanded CD from Alan Howarth Incorporated, as well as on vinyl LP from Death Waltz Records and Mondo. The Thing by Neo Morricone is available on vinyl LP from Waxwork Records, and in the Alan Howarth re-recorded expanded edition on both vinyl LP and CD from BSX Records and Note for Note Music. Big Trouble in Little China, which can be found on CD from La La Land Records and on vinyl LP from Mondo. Halloween 4, The Return of Michael Myers, which is available on CD from Verez Sarah Band and in a limited edition expanded CD from Alan Howarth Incorporated, as well as on vinyl LP from Death Waltz Records and Mondo. Halloween 5, The Revenge of Michael Myers, is also available on CD from Verez Sarah Band and in a limited edition expanded CD from Alan Howarth Incorporated, as well as on vinyl LP from Death Waltz Records and Mondo. And Halloween, The Curse of Michael Myers, is also available on CD from Verez Sarah Band and in a limited edition expanded CD from Alan Howarth Incorporated. Thank you so much for listening to Scored to Death, the podcast. Please come back in two weeks for another in-depth conversation with one of horror's greatest composers. Mm-hmm.